and welcome to Planet Watch, Earth-sized solutions to giant planet-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, what if we could restore the atmosphere of Earth to pre-global warming levels? Our guest will be Peter Fikowski. He's founder and president of the Healthy Climate Alliance and co-founder of the 300by250.com. Mr. Fikowski is an MIT physicist with 27 patents. We'll talk to him in just a moment, but first... We have um, a podcast to which you can subscribe at uh, planetwatchradio.com. And if you want to ask our guest during the interview that's coming shortly uh, a question, or you can email us between or after the show, uh, go to the address radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. All right. So now you know how to reach us. You can also look at us on, on Facebook. Literally, we're streaming live uh, video-wise. So you can um, wave and see what we look like for what it's worth. Somebody said we had a great face for radio. We'll just take that as a compliment. <laughs> and meanwhile, we have a few news stories to share with you before we go to our first guest. Maya Rodriguez is an intern. She was with me at Cabrillo College in the broadcast writing class. And now she's at CSUMB studying reporting. And we're happy to have her share a story with you today. Thank you, Rachel. A biochemical breakthrough has allowed scientists at University of California, Berkeley, to create fiber mats that can absorb chemical pollution. Researchers analyzed the patterns of protein sequences in order to develop a synthetic polymer that would allow proteins to survive outside of a living cell. According to scientists, proteins typically fall apart outside of their natural environment, but this new method successfully combined functioning proteins with synthet uh, I'm sorry, synthetic material. They used this protein-based material to form fiber mats with the ability of bioremediation of toxic chemicals. When submerged in a well-known insecticide, the fiber mat successfully degraded one-tenth of its weight in toxic chemicals within minutes. The study was partly funded by the U.S. Department of Defense with the hope that this technology could be applied in war zones to soak up the pollution of chemical warfare. Thank you for that story. Let's hope there's just no more chemical warfare so they won't have to use that product at all. And uh, now Tommy Martin has a story. Tommy's been with us as our intern since almost the beginning of the show. And it's <laughs> great that you're still with us a whole year later. We didn't chase you off. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. A team from Gladstone Institutes in San Francisco has discovered a way to improve neuron connections in mice with Alzheimer's disease. The approach worked with a type of neuron called inhibitory interneurons, which serve to coordinate brain rhythms. In Alzheimer's patients, these interneurons stop communicating properly due to the toxic environment created by the disease. To overcome this imbalance, uh, the team transplanted genetically modified interneurons into mice with Alzheimer's. By adding a protein to the inner neurons, they were able to overcome the toxicity levels and restore rhythms needed to, for cognitive function. The team is examining whether the cell therapy could work in humans and also searching for potential drugs which could enhance cognitive function without a transplant. As someone with a family member who suffered from Alzheimer's and passed um, the past year, I hope they figure it out soon because it's really needing a cure. Yeah, there's lots of research going on. That's great. And in one more story uh, for our thinking before we get to our guest, um, you may have heard that Stephen Hawking passed away this last Wednesday. Hawking transformed our notion of space and time and the nature of black holes, and he did it all while confined to a wheelchair and deprived of speech. Born in Oxford in 1942 and a less than stellar student at first, Hawking was just 21 when he was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And he was told he had just a few days, excuse me, years to live. But he was undaunted by this and he defied his prognosis by decades, pursuing his research at Cambridge while communicating through computerized speech, astonishing even himself, as he once told 60 Minutes program. And uh, his public honors were almost beyond counting. He received a Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. He was elected to the Royal Society, the world's oldest scientific academy, in 1974 at only age 32. Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, described how he would sit hunched and motionless for hours over an abstruse book on quantum theory, too weak to turn the pages without help. Reese wondered what was going through his mind. Was it failing too? 
But as he could no longer write equations, Hawking had developed a remarkable skill to use geometrical and topological images of mathematics in his head to solve problems. He was following through a eureka moment that he had in 1970, a few days after the birth of his daughter Lucy, that would lead to his realization that black holes are not so black. He discovered they would bleed off what is now called Hawking radiation and gradually evaporate, much to his great surprise. So I thought we would uh, leave you or start the program, as it were, with a uh, remembrance by listening to him through his computerized voice. But yeah, we, we can't bring Paul Hawking back from the dead to interview him, but we're going to play you the next best Stephen thing. Hawking. Uh, so, sorry, <laughs> Paul Hawking. He's Stephen Hawking. But uh, the, uh, one thing I want to say about what you're about to hear, uh, he's being interviewed by Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he uses the word Euclidean. <clears throat> now, for those of you who don't know what that means, it's basically, well, there was this great geometer uh, way back in the day named Euclid, and he uh, was famous for plane geometry, you know, geometry on a two-dimensional flat plane, and Hawking is uh, talking about using a curved version of that. So anyway, if that's what that word means in what you're about to hear. So, Stephen, everyone wants to know what was around before the Big Bang. Nothing was around before the Big Big Bang. According to Einstein's general theory of relativity, space and time together form a space-time continuum or manifold which is not flat, but curved by the matter and energy in it. I adopt the Euclidean approach to quantum gravity to describe the beginning of the universe. In this, Ordinary real time is replaced by imaginary time, which behaves like a fourth direction of space. Mm -hmm. In the Euclidean approach, the history of the universe in imaginary time is a four-dimensional curved surface, like the surface of the Earth, but with two more dimensions. Jim Hartle and I proposed a no-boundary condition. The boundary condition of the universe is that it has no boundary. Okay. In order terms, the Euclidean space-time is a closed surface without add, like the surface of the Earth. One can regard imaginary and real-time as beginning at the South Pole, which is a smooth point of space-time where the normal laws of physics hold. There is nothing south of the South Pole, so there was nothing around before the Big Bang. Thank you, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking and Rachel for playing that. And, mm -hmm. and our engineer Griffin back there. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, uh, Michael Swirling, for letting all of this technology happen and bring you this program. Thank you so much for allowing us to create it here at KSCO and send it out to places like Chapel Hill, North Carolina and Columbus, Ohio. Thank you to those folks for running Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest, Peter Vykowski is the founder and president of the Healthy Climate Alliance and co-founder of 300by250.com. He's an entrepreneur committed to leaving a world we're proud of for our children. He's also founder and president of AVI LLC and a board member of the Repower Capital, Inc. He also is a physicist from MIT with 27 patents. And he's going to talk to us today about something you don't hear a lot about, which hopefully will give you some hope that there are good things we could do to right the ship planet and um, help ourselves not end up in a dire situation. And that is restoring the atmosphere to pre-global warming levels in a sustainable way. And we're going to talk about all the ways that might happen. Welcome to the program, Peter. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to talk with you guys and your audience. So we were talking just before we came on the air about the fact that most of the science fiction films about humanity's future end up poorly. <laughs> <laughs> they either, you know, end up as, you know, us drowning or a um, number of other scenarios that are not too pretty, including The Walking Dead, you know. But, you know, there aren't too many that show <laughs> planet Earth having a rosy and healthy and sustainable future where humanity is happily in the right population amount and eat with plenty of food and healthy air and water. So um, how do we turn that around and what's your vision for making that a reality? That's a great question. When you asked it, I was thinking about the movie Back to the Future was about 
you know, 20 years ago. And um, the, 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 uh, the, the character is telling the two kids who are going back to the future, they said, You're, the future is not written. Write a good one. And really what we're up to is writing the future rather than predicting the future. And those of us in Silicon Valley, you know, people like myself who have a lot of patents, realize that if you just go with what's predictable, it's pretty grim. And the dystopian movies, they take what, what we know and they extrapolate it and it looks really grim. But those of us who carry around iPhones or drive, maybe drive a Tesla, these things were not predictable just a few years ago. And boom, due to imagination, we create uh, pathways to achieve it. Mm. So um, I've spent my, uh, in my spare time about 30-some years lobbying Congress for poverty issues. And along the way, we accomplished amazing things. We got funding to immunize all the world's kids. We got funding to bring microfinance to pretty much everyone on the planet. We, we got funding to uh, reverse uh, AIDS. You know, this is, the experts now say this is the last generation with the transmission of AIDS. Hmm. And so I, I so sort of was raised in a context of seeing these miracles happen. And when I was called on as a consultant to an organization called Citizens Climate Lobby, which spun out of the poverty lobby, um, as an as advisor, I asked, what's your goal? And they said, well, we're trying to put a price on carbon. I thought, that's really good. I, I've got economics background. That tells me that's a smart thing to do. But that's a means to an end. What's the goal? And they said, well, we don't really have one. Uh, why don't you talk to the experts? And they put me in charge of the 100-year plan team to figure out what is the goal that we want in terms of the climate. And so I talked to the top climate experts around the world. Jim, Jim Dr. Jim Hansen is on our board, so I got to have lunch with him and a lot of professors at Stanford because I live in Silicon Valley and MIT because I'm an alum of, out of MIT. No one could tell me what we wanted to achieve. And finally, at one of the COP, uh, the, M the UN... Uh, Conference of the Com Parties. Conference COP, of the Parties, yeah. 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 yeah uh, uh, climate conferences, <clears throat> uh, a bishop took me to dinner. And at the end of the dinner, I realized that climate is actually a moral issue, and which is a shock to me because I'm a physicist and I'm a, I have a software business in semiconductor manufacturing. I'm technical from A to Z. But I realized that science per se doesn't care about the climate, doesn't care about survival of humanity. Only humans do. And so... That was the, the catalyst. And we said, well, the, our goal of the climate is to give our children, give the, and your uh, interns here are the next generation, so to give you guys the same climate that we were given, that our grandparents gave us. And that makes perfect sense. I've uh, pretty much never had anyone argue that that's the moral thing to do. And then starting with that goal, we looked at, well, how could that be achieved? And I'm guessing most of the people on the program Will, this, what I'm going to say will make sense, that, well, in order to restore the climate back to the way it was 100 years ago, we've got to get a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. Right, because we put the carbon in, that's what's causing the climate change. We've got to get the carbon out. It'd be smart to not keep putting carbon in, but in any case, we get the, we've got to get the carbon out. And those of you who've been reading the news rate lately realize that we also have to restore the Arctic ice. The Arctic has melted, and now the blue ocean in the Arctic, uh, they have 24-hour-a-day sun in the summertime. Uh, that's a, the sun heating up that blue ocean, which used to be white ice, which used to reflect the sun out into outer space. That's now a third of the heating of the planet. <sighs> so even when, when we get the carbon out of the atmosphere, if we don't do the Arctic as well, we're still cooked. And I Most don't want people don't realize that they just yeah. figure if we just stop driving as many cars around and we cut coal and we, you know, cut oil and go to solar and wind, that solves the problem. Right. And right. it doesn't. It saying. doesn't. We have it, to get the ice back. <clears throat> There's a lot yeah. of hell still baked in, even if we <laughs> completely <laughs> stop emitting carbon. So we got to go beyond zero. We have and to get pull it, it out. Colder? Are you saying that we have to like refreeze the ice? Yeah. Well, although let's leave the ice to, for later, because okay. it's for myself, for example, I only realized the ice was an issue once I could actually really picture getting the carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so let's focus on the thing that blocks people's imagination. And so uh, we have a trillion tons of CO2, carbon dioxide, to get out of the atmosphere. And I'm, 
I don't know what that looks like. It's a big number. Um, Trillion tons. Well, a ton is big, right? Yeah. That's something most people can kind of get their brains around because what a car is three tons. Yeah. So um, it's a lot. Basically, it's a lot. <laughs> the point is, you don't have to know what a trillion tons is. It's just a whole lot of carbon to get it's out not, of the atmosphere. A million, million, or a thousand billion. Yeah. We're putting about. 40 billion tons a year into the atmosphere now. Yeah. So stack that up against... So, so uh, this is a thousand trillion. So what I always could get my brain around is that's so heavy. Why isn't it just raining down on us all the time? It's it's something that weighs a lot. Yeah. Why is it up there? Okay, that's another, that's another, another story. Another show. So, so, we'll so, so, so the crux of the matter is I had a chance to talk with a scientist who researched getting carbon out of the atmosphere. And I asked them... Um, you know, if we want to get the trillion tons out, we want to do it at 50 billion tons a year. And you can do the math or not do the math, but you can trust that 50 billion tons is a smart number as, to use as a target. It's more than we're putting in. By right. 10, yeah, right. 10, exactly. 10, yeah, 10 billion. It's, a, it's a lot more than we're putting in. And, you know, we, the technology for, getting, for reducing emissions is growing rapidly. So it, it's, a, it's a good number. And the scientists said, well, we have eight different methods which could scale to 50 billion tons a year, uh, but no one's ever asked us before if we could save the planet. No one's ever asked us before if the, uh, the method that I work on could scale to the level to save the planet. But since you're asking, the answer is, yeah, it could. And that was amazing. The real question is, why has no one asked them? <laughs> well, you know, uh, we've yes. been talking about this on this show a lot. And by the way, uh, we're going to get into some of the details or, or specific ideas, but you can email us <laughs> at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And our ever faithful original intern, Tommy, here is scanning his laptop with eagle eyes. So uh, join us and participate in this conversation. And by the way, this is all just a start. <laughs> I mean, we're going to get Peter and others of his ilk back on the show early and often. I mean, we could do every show for the rest of my life, which maybe will be a long time because I'm, I'm a tough old bastard. But anyway, uh, <laughs> on this topic, you know, getting the carbon out, what so, I call XC. So yes. you, you said there are eight different uh, scalable things, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not going to go into each of them because it'll get really boring. Go to some of the most intriguing. Yeah. Top so, three, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Well, uh, th there are uh, three methods which are actually profitable. And uh, there are lots of methods, you know, people know about growing forests and they're growing a for uh, forest is great, but it just doesn't scale to this 50 billion tons a year. And so I want to encourage it and biochar and a lot of other things, which are great things to do, but they don't scale. So I'm going to talk about the things that do scale. Um, and you can either do it on land or you can do it in the ocean. Or and both. Or both. Yes, or probably almost certainly both. All of the above. <laughs> and on land, if, you, you, if you're going to uh, get the carbon out, you got to put it somewhere. And so then the question is, what do you do with 50 billion tons of, of carbon dioxide? And if you want to sell it, the only thing that we buy in that quantity is concrete, is, is gravel, is aggregate for concrete. And it turns out that the limestone, which is what you usually use for the aggregate in the concrete, is half by weight, half CO2. And so in Silicon Valley, we have a company called Blue Planet, which actually takes CO2 and tr takes calcium, turns it into limestone. They sell it for aggregate, and they're working over the next number of years to scale up. And they could get a large fraction of the atmosphere, of the CO2 out of the atmosphere and then sell it uh, for uh, a profit. How does it actually get sucked out of the atmosphere and turned into something solid? They use a process uh, uh, modeled after how shellfish, how clams do it, because mm -hmm. that's exactly what clams do. They take the CO2 out of the atmosphere and calcium, and they turn it into their shell, and the shell is limestone. So it's biomimicry in a way. It is yeah. absolutely that. Very yeah. cool. And I've it's very low curious. energy. Um, they have lots of good patents. Uh, so, so you can do that. Uh, you can also, uh, the, the way we usually talk about it, and we have a paper coming out from Rand Corporation uh, next month, um, they, they take the very conservative approach, and you can also uh, do the same process underground. And this is actually being done in Iceland right now, where they take uh, what they call direct air capture, which is a machine which concentrates the CO2 from the atmosphere. They pump it into a basalt, a volcanic field underground with water and over about a year between a month and a year that co2 uh turns into carbonic acid which is what co2 does in water and it forms a carbonate a rock underground so it's sequestered under underground essentially it's the same thing that we're doing with the aggregate 
except that you can't sell it. So it's a simpler business model, except that you got someone's got to pay a lot of money for it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's on, that's on the land in the ocean. What you the, the what you really want to do is take advantage of photosynthesis. Now you, as I said earlier, you you like doing photosynthesis on land. It's just that we're using the land for growing food and it's not too much it's hard to negotiate that Uh, the ocean is five times bigger than the land and there's lots of sun there's lots of water but the limiting factor is nutrients and the nutrients if you imagine the big wide ocean the nutrients will either come as, as dust falling from this from a dust storm or from a volcano or it'll the nutrients will come as upwelling from under the ocean because when the sea life dies it sinks to the middle of the ocean and then upwelling will bring it back up and give, produce the nutrients so there's one set of projects called um, ocean fertilization or iron fertilization which is uh, essentially a uh, very fine uh, iron dust iron uh, just uh, yeah iron uh, Sort of like iron filings, yeah. but it's iron dust. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and, and they grind it very fine, and that's, the in a lot of the ocean, the key missing nutrient. Um, and what they find is that it, it, it lights up the ocean, and uh, inter- not literally. It produces a lot of uh, photosynthesis, which produces fish. Fisheries increase, and a lot of the stuff that's produced, the dead fish and the, and the fish poop, falls to the bottom of the ocean, and, and it... It looks like it works. Now, there's controversy. There a lot of scientists say, oh, I don't think it works. Uh, you know, and you, know, you never know until you try. That is, we do know that when nature wants to, do a, wants to give us an ice age, what nature does is they, it produces the, that, uh, uh, that iron dust with volcanoes, and that produces a lot of uh, carbon sequestered at the bottom of the ocean, which pulls CO2 out of the air, which then gives us an ice age. So we know that nature does it. And so it is biomimicry. It's just it's really hard to test. But and you it, don't really want to provoke a bunch of volcanic eruptions just to see if you could cool <laughs> the climate because that could go awry and cause another ice age. So yes. it, of course we we haven't figured out how to goose volcanoes yet. But when you're talking about dumping iron filings in the water, you are mimicking them, I suppose. If you yeah. just joined us, I'm talking with Peter Fikowski. He is an MIT trained physicist. He's got 27 patents, so he's deep in the heart of Silicon Valley. And he is hot on the trail of maybe eight different methods to cause us to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So that's what we're talking about today here on Planet Watch. Very interesting discussion. And lest some of you out there, I'm sure some of you probably did have a little red flag run up as soon as you heard the mention of OIF, ocean iron fertilization, because that was an idea that was kind of dismissed rather vehemently some years ago. However, this just in, there's an oceanographer retired now from UCSC who's been doing some work on the ocean water column and the stability and, you know, vulnerability and safety of the life in the oceans if you were to do a scheme like this. And it turns out it may not be as bad as had been feared. So that's potentially some good news, you know. And as Peter says, we're not going to know until we... Try things, or at least study them more. Well, and good. one thing we do know is that that ocean acidification <clears throat> will cause species decline, yeah. and that's what we're already seeing. We're seeing oysters that can't make shells as fast, um, and a number of other corals having bleaching issues. So, well, the key thing, Rachel, yeah. is what you asked a few minutes ago about why hasn't anyone asked about how do you restore the climate before? And the answer, one answer, is there is no the answer, but one answer is that. 50 years ago, all we needed to do was reduce emissions. And so the story was, how do you reduce emissions? And there was a lot of work on that. Um, At this point, we're way above 300 parts per million, way above 350, way above 400 parts per million. We've really passed the tipping point on the climate that that, uh, emission reduction will fix it. So we've got to look at getting carbon out. But no one had asked the question before. And so what our project is really about asking the question, first saying, are we committed to the next generation to have them give them a good climate? And if so, let's commit to doing it safely. And then given our commitment to do it safely, let's find out how to do it safely. And it starts out with some methods like, let's try this, let's try that. And what about kelp? Tell us about Brian von Herzen and his idea of marine aquaculture. Yeah. So uh, that's the third method. Uh, as I said, in the ocean, you can do upwelling to, to 
produce nutrients to increase photosynthesis. And what he, what Brian is doing is pumping uh, the nutrient-rich water from a thousand feet using a wave-powered pump. Just a float on the wave goes up and down, and it pumps the water up. And then he has a structure to on which he grows kelp, because kelp is the fastest growing and most efficient photosynthesis machine on the planet. And then part of the kelp is harvested and sold, use, um, used in place as fish food. And a lot of the kelp falls to the bottom of the ocean, sequestering a lot of carbon. If you want to ask a question of Peter Fikowski, our guest today here on Planet Watch, you're welcome to write to us. You can also comment on Facebook and give us a question that way. Radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And it sounds like we do have a question from the audience. Yeah. Um, does Mr. Fikowski believe governments can implement a timely carbon cutting policy while we still have a neo-capitalist economy? They, oh, they jumped the gun yeah. on my question. Oh. Thank you. I was just going to ask something. <laughs> I was going like, to ask. We can, we can engineer things all we want, but there are people and politics and governments to deal with. And so. And the profit motives. So are we'll talk are about you an that. expert on that? Well, yeah. Well, here's the, if you want an optimistic answer, is it's not a big issue. Because if you think about, we've got a thousand gigatons of uh, CO2 to get out, and we're only outputting 30 or 40 right now, and a it's year. a year, mm -hmm. um, and it's already cheaper to build new energy sources out of renewable energy than it is fossil fuel. That that ship has already that that train has left the station. We are going to reduce emissions. And whether we reduce it really fast or a little bit fast doesn't make a lot of difference compared to that thousand gigatons we have to get out. And so um, if you want to save the planet for yourself and any kids you might have, focus on demanding that we give you a healthy climate, which means that we get the CO2 out, because that's the thing that's not yet happening. We, we know it can be done because nature does it. And we just need to put the safety mechanism in to do it. So one of the questions I think that was maybe wrapped into that question is, given um, the current situation of our capitalist you know, system that we're in that favors some industry over others because of lobbying, um, you know, even ones that seem to be dinosaur industries like coal, sorry, coal people, but that is the case. Um, so how do we get through this bottleneck moment where we have uh, people in power who are just going against the grain. Um, and is it going to just be on entrepreneurs like yourself to make a profit on carbon just outside of the, any kind of government involvement? Uh, I think in the short term, yes. And the reason is that uh, behaviorists, psychologists tell us that people take action on things where they can see a pathway to the result they want and they see people taking action. And so, for example, these scientists who had methods, they, they couldn't see how they could use those methods to save the planet. And they certainly weren't seeing anyone taking action. So they were sitting on their methods. And so we're instigating uh, entrepreneurs to start working on it. So David von Her uh, uh, Brian von Herzen, for example, working on his uh, marine permaculture uh, and Blue Planet. So they're laying the foundation so people can say, see the train leaving the station and getting people to want to get on the train. Probably in a few years, I would predict, governments will say, wait a minute, our citizens want to save the planet too. We'll actually invest some government money. But that can't happen until we get the train going. So you think it's going to be private investment that's driving most of the, this innovation in, yes. in climate uh, reparation, yes. restoration. That's really interesting because so often Silicon Valley finds itself in some weird position like Facebook is in right now where the Russians have commandeered it to manipulate our elections or, you know, sent all these bots to change what people think they know about facts, including about climate change. Truth decay, we call yeah, it. Yeah, there's been a huge <laughs> manipulation and these, these relatives relatively benign technologies that started out fairly innocently to connect people with their friends are being engineered to create societal change that's not that great. Um, do you think um, Silicon Valley can learn a lesson from that and do something where it keeps control over the trajectory of what it started? Yeah. And by the way, let's put in a word for the rest of the country, too. I mean, Silicon Valley gets all the press, but let's educate, do really good quality, fun, interesting education for the whole country. But I mentioned this because yes. our guest is right out of the heart of yeah, Silicon yeah, Valley, yeah. and he's been participating yeah. in the culture there, which sometimes does amazing things because do they're not afraid. Things. 
but they don't always see where it's go. What's going to happen to it once they let the genie out? Yeah, that the the critical thing is the design. And so I, I've been learning as I've been putting together this movement, this climate restoration movement, that the critical thing is to focus on safely restoring the climate. And it's sort of like if you think about air air travel now, getting on a plane is safer than driving. It's safer than walking. And the reason it's safe is that the the airline industry said we're going to make this safe and we're going to continually improve and build the infrastructure and the reporting and and so on and so we're going to do that in the climate because we're safe because that's what we want to do uh and so the focus the rest of this year is building the the sensing and reporting infrastructure so that as we restore the climate we can guarantee society it's as safe as flying It seems to me that any one government, you know, one country's government um, isn't enough to agree to do something as potentially globally many maybe beneficial as seeding the oceans with iron, that it will need to be some sort of intergovernmental global body that makes these global decisions. We didn't decide collectively to start manipulating our environment to the hotter direction, but we're going there anyway. So now do you think that there will be some sort of a UN type of body that looks at geoengineering type things to try to agree that we're doing it together as a globe and not one rogue country seeding the clouds. As yeah, and then others out there vigilante trying to shoot them down or whatever, <laughs> yeah, you know, confronting them. It'd be better if we marched in lockstep instead yeah. of kind of randomly go out and try things. Right? Yeah, well, what we're working on now is having, rather than having the UN focus on the engineering, have, the, uh, have it focus on the protection, on the safety. Mm-hmm. So, like, the U.S. government doesn't do much engineering on airplanes, but they do support safety. The National Transportation Safety Board manages the data and makes sure it's impeccable and available and really rapid. And so that's what the U.N. can do. If the U.N. says, listen, we're going insta- to in- implement the reporting and sensing and uh, uh, negotiation, monitoring, monitoring mm-hmm. then the engineers will come in very happily, just like in the airline industry, to uh, to work safely. Because everyone, as my observation is, everybody really wants to save the planet for their children. Yeah. If they can see that, they, they can do it safely. And that's our, our job this year, is we're going to do it safely. How many um, scientists and engineers do you suppose are involved with this movement to restore the climate? We've got, um, we're uh, launching a first climate restoration conference in Rome uh, uh, next month. And we've got about 30 scientists and engineers coming and some uh, reporters and writers. So just a a dozen or two. Mm. Well, Uh, it's a a start, you know, and, and compared to the number of people studying just how our climate is heating up, I'm sure that 30 is a much smaller number than... Uh, the number of people, like I said, who are monitoring what's happening. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just read, too, today that FEMA took all mention of global warming and its planning off of of its plate, basically scrubbing the word. Uh, They used to have plans in place of how to deal. This reminds me of the the church back in the days of Galileo, you know, he discovered sunspots on the sun and the, the church didn't want to hear about it. And, you know, it's the same sort of mentality. Well, I hope everyone saves all, archives all these pages and all this information because as <laughs> soon as we get these scoundrels out of office, we're going to put it back up because it's pretty hard to dispute the facts and, and to, not to prepare as FEMA seems rather foolish since they're the mop-up crew that, and they have been mopping up from places like Puerto Rico. Well, th- so. that, that's one of the key issues right now. I'm finding that <clears throat> the really high-level scientists are focusing on how do we save cities with sea level rise, with these tropical storms, which are now you know, typically 100 mile an hour winds with hurricanes, that's going to go up to 150 in a few years. They told me last week it'll go up to 200 in another decade or two. Really? 225, that they're going to have to build, have building standards for 225 mile an hour winds, and you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so the the top scientists I talked to, they're so transfixed by what do we do about that? Um, they're not yet ready to work with me on how do we restore it. Mm. Now, my, my daughter was telling me, but dad, isn't it a lot easier just to 
restore the climate so you don't have to build buildings to withstand 200-mile-an-hour winds? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it sounds like a, a no-brainer, but um, people sort of fall into old patterns of, we'll just rebuild it. Yes. Well, let me ask you an important question, which I know people out there are wondering, and we've been asked it many times, is, uh, okay, well, if you get really good at pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, isn't that just going to enable the human race to go on with its habit of willy-nilly injecting gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere? In other words, does it, does it let us off the hook for the reducing and zeroing out emissions? Uh, and we talked a little bit about this a couple days ago. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, the, the, the uh, price, <clears throat> as I said a little earlier, the price of uh, renewable energy is going down. And it's really cheaper to build renewable energy. So that, that is going to happen anyway. And the, what we really want is a healthy climate. And the thing for the, our listeners is that the, the, to get to a healthy climate, you've got to get the carbon out. It's too late to just reduce emissions. Yeah, and if you have a good, healthy price on carbon, I mean, the prices we're talking about now are kind of a pittance, but if we really get it to where it should be, which is high, both the cost of putting it into the atmosphere and if you can present carbon sequestered in useful products like, you know, concrete or, yeah. you know, kelp and be paid for that, well, hey, there's your market. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. What do you think? Yeah. So I'm committed this is going to happen. Uh, technically, I've seen no problems. As I said, the, the barrier at the moment is there's no, there's no monitoring in place, but we're working on that this year. The finance is not huge. It's big, but it's not huge. It's a f tiny fraction of what gets spent on, on large wars. And uh, it's a fraction of what we spend on fossil fuels. The, um, uh, and people are hungry for the narrative. And yeah. so there's really no barrier other than just people getting together and breaking through the past. Because the really big difference now is in the past, we used to say when, when the, our, our population was low, when we had a billion people or a million people on the planet, we would say, behave well and life will go well. Well, now you've got to do, you've got to say, figure out where you want to end up. Because only if you do that will you actually end up there. And so it's no longer good enough to just to not admit. You've got to say, we want to restore the climate or like with the airline industry, we want to have as close to zero fatalities as possible and then let the engineering and the behavior match the goal. And I, gotta, I hate to bring up the Manhattan Project because it, its end was, you know, a destructive end. But when humanity decides on something and puts all of its scientific might behind it, in a very short amount of time, maybe the Apollo uh, moonshot was a better, yeah. more positive example. But um, in either of those cases, we made a big decision about where we were going That's and got right. there within a very short amount of time, you know, a couple of years in or each few, case. Yeah, yeah that, that's the transformation that I ask our, our listeners to engage in, is focus on the outcome, not on the behavior. And that's just a transformation for humans. When there were very few of us, we could focus on behavior. Now that there's almost 8 billion of us with a lot of technology, we've got to focus on outcomes. Maybe we've got to focus on fewer human beings, too. Like well, we can talk about that. <laughs> that Population. I do that, want to talk about that. Yeah, that has a lot to do with educating girls uh, and so on and women. But uh, i got a science-y question for you, which we didn't cover in our little phone conversation the other day to kind of preview and prep for this show. Uh, we're talking about CDR, carbon dioxide removal. But are any of the methods you folks are working on... Uh, working directly on removal of methane, because methane is a you know, more serious molecule per molecule uh, greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. What do you know about getting the methane out? Well, two things. Uh, you, we do have a, a scientist who's proposed a, a tested way of doing it, uh, which could be done. Uh, my personal uh, focus is, well, methane decays in about 10 years so uh, let's focus on the critical thing, which is the CO2. And then if we, if we have extra money, we can pull the methane out faster than 10 years. Yeah, it's true. The carbon dioxide has a very long lifetime on thousand the order years. of a century mm -hmm. or a thousand, millennia. Yeah. thousand years. Yeah. I'd like to remind our listeners that they're listening to Planet Watch Radio. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan. And our guest is Peter Fikowski, who has 
been studying this issue a long time. He's got 27 patents, so he's not just making this stuff up. And he's part of an organization, 300 by 2050. What is that organization? And, and obviously the goal there has yes. baked into the... <laughs> <laughs> baked into the name. Yes. Yeah, so 300 by 2050 uh, is an organization we launched at the UN General Assembly last fall. And it uh, it's designed to finance and be and house our Center for Climate Restoration. And so it very, makes very clear our goal is get back to 300 parts per, per million, which is what the atmosphere was at 100 years ago. Now, we, we need to go a little farther than that, but 300 is a nice round number. And if we don't do it by 2050, it's too late for the next generation. So that's the number. It's, it's the goal to do it by then. Yeah. And that website, which is worth checking out, it's actually quite beautiful as well as informative and interesting. Uh, it's 300x2050.com. Org, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Check Fantastic. That out. I, I would like to read more about that because it seems like developing a center and a, an organization around that, the technology is the first step in what hopefully won't be a long process. Whenever we hear 2050, we think it's a long way off, but actually we're almost at 2020, so it's only 30 years. Yes. And these other things we were talking about happened in just a couple of years. They were up and running. So, again, it's about the intention. Yeah, it's very doable. We've done timelines, and, of course, there's enormous uncertainty which of these methods will turn out to be uh, viable. You know, everyone knows that the Earth is a very complicated system, so you can do as much science and as much engineering as you want, and you're not going to predict the outcome. Yeah, and I challenge anybody who says this can't be done. I mean, look, <laughs> one way or another, some shred of the human race is going to survive, and those people will be a different animal. We, we need humanity change to, to deal with climate change. So whoever is left a century from now will have done something like what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Maybe not by planning it and figuring it out in advance, but it will have been worked out in an evolutionary kind of thing. Well, well this, this is different, yeah. though, because you're talking about intervening and, and not yeah, letting, letting this true. run its course. And um, that, that might not mean there's a bottleneck of humanity and all yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, look at Elon Musk sending a rocket to Mars. It didn't take long at all because he said, here's what we want to do. Here's a billion or two dollars. Let's go do it. You know, with a very clear goal, we produce miracles. And I, I, all the evidence I'm seeing is that we will deliver on getting on a healthy climate for our interns and their generation by 2050. Now, you said it was boring to list off some of those other methods. You've gone through three. I'm yeah. curious about a couple more just because okay. I'd like to hear about this. How are we going to get there stuff? So yeah, we're starved more. for solutions <laughs> around here. <laughs> yeah, then you can't probably tell us more than... You could tell yeah. us more than eight and we'd still gobble it up. Yeah, well, so uh, you can do... Um, uh, you can put alkaline chemicals, alkaline rocks into the ocean, and that will absorb the the... the uh, carbon dioxide, the carbonic acid. So that's one way to do it. The disadvantage of that is it's about a one-to-one -one mass of rock to CO2. So it's a lot of rock that needs to be moved in. Whereas if you do the fertilization stuff, it's a million-to-one ratio. So you're going to mine these rocks? Is that probably part of the problem? Yeah, or quarry them. There'd be giant holes in the ground trying to fix the problem. Yeah, it's, it's doable, but it's it's it's... I can difficult. see why it's down on your list. Yeah. What else you got? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you can, um, you, you, there's a, a large num number of technologies for what they call direct air capture. So these are machines that will absorb CO2 from the atmosphere and then put it out into a pipe of pure CO2. And then with that, you can, as I said, you could bury it in a basalt field where it gets turns into rock underground. You can turn it into uh, coal. You can just turn it into carbon and bury that. Um, there is a company doing that now, but it's very tiny, the yes. amount that they're taking out mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. Then you put a do not ever dig up and burn sign on it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, 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 the picture I had in my mind when I started this is I picture a, fact, a factory and an old coal mine. And so it's just taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and dumping the carbon back into the coal mine where it was uh, 100 and, and years now, ago. a point that needs to be made, though, <laughs> is the energetics of all this are formidable. I mean, you know, we've, we've used a tremendous amount of energy to get where we are now, and we're going to have to use a comparably <laughs> stupendous amount of energy to reverse that. Um, 
Is that possible? Do the yeah. numbers work? Oh, the numbers absolutely work. Um, two ways to look at it. One is if you do the ocean stuff, the, there's, I don't know what the number is, a million or 10 million times more ener sunlight energy hitting the ocean than is needed for this. No, oh, maybe at least tens of thousands. I'll give you tens of thousands. Oh, okay, but some yes. huge number more. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so that's, that's one approach. Um, and then if you do the direct air capture, you can actually just do solar panels. And if you have 30 years... Solar panels over, I don't know, 100 square miles is enough to do it. Um, but a whole other approach is there's now fusion and cold fusion and stuff like that. Those technologies are going really fast. Cold fusion? You got anybody we can talk to about that? I'm still kind of wondering on that one. Uh, I do. We, we can well, talk about that. Stay tuned for yes. previews of coming attractions. <laughs> and how does that work with sequestration or sucking out of the atmosphere? It provides very low-cost energy. Oh, okay. So it's preventing more more emissions as well yeah that too yeah mm -hmm. exactly yeah mm -hmm. the energy to do this extraction of oh, the carbon right. from the atmosphere right because yes. this image of unminers you know you've got coal yeah. miners and then you have unminers un yes they're like putting the coal back <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure they do that just as happily as a digging it out you know it's all just it's like my work. brother back east used to run a landfill and i called him a reverse sculptor it, it was like <laughs> uh, you know re putting putting <laughs> things together instead of taking it out yeah, we, we have a lot of things we could figure out how to do, um, stopping doing some things and starting others. And it sounds like um, a lot of people in Silicon Valley and other places are trying to figure this stuff out, and they just haven't really been asked, which is your whole yeah. point. And let me add one other thing. You were talking about population. It turns out if you want to get the population back to something our planet can handle, and uh, Paul... Uh, Paul Ehrlich, who first wrote about this in the 60s, says it's probably 2 billion people, about a quarter of what we have, that uh, if you just do the same birth rate we they have in Italy, for example, which is much higher than, say, in South Korea or Japan, that by the end of the century, we're effectively at that, at that uh, population size. And it's one of those things that no one ever asked the question before, okay, what's the goal? If we wanted to do it in a nice way, how would we do it? And the answer is, as you said, educate girls, and give people a picture of a healthy-sized population, and then uh, families are often very happy and to have And put a only high one. priority on improving everybody's quality of life. Exactly. And that everybody will shrink in sheer numbers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm looking at our interns here. Imagine you had only one child, and you knew that child would get the best health care in the world and would absolutely go to college. That's why we used to have eight kids. because... That's why what? That's why we used to have eight kids because oh, yeah. the, they needed kind of to work the land, mentality. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so so that that's very doable as well, and we can talk about that another day. Well, and, and it's sort of fallen off the radar. There was a lot of discussion about it in the '60s and '70s about overpopulation, and as our population continues to grow, there has been very little discussion. I remember there was a big rift in the Sierra Club where they tried to bring it back up, yeah. and people thought it was, you know. Too scary to tackle. Well, it's the same thing in the climate. Yeah. I was talking with a, a climate expert last week who said, well, you know, the, the National Academy of Sciences was researching geoengineering, and we wanted to talk about, say, what language do we want to use? Should we use mitigation or restoration? And they said internally, they said, we can't say restoration. That's crazy talk. And so it's just a matter of giving them the courage to say, no, we are going to restore it because we have enough people who actually want to restore it and who will pro produce the funding and yeah. the encouragement. As they say, or as I say a lot of times, be bold. We've got to be bold and just talk to people about crazy talk. Yeah. What, and, what's know, crazy is it. accepting that your planet <laughs> yes. is going to become unlivable in 100 years. That's crazy. That's crazy. And no species, knowing that, should be thinking Can't that's the that. norm. And some of so. us are going to make sure, because I have nothing else to do in life other than restore the climate <laughs> for this generation. <laughs> Thank you for doing oh, that. Yeah, thank you. We well, you need more to, of you. Can we clone you, you? You care to stick around for the last six or seven minutes of the show? i got a few little fun oddball stuff things for you that I think you'll enjoy. <laughs> I'd love it. All right, and, and before we do that, let's thank Peter Fikowski for being yeah. our guest today on Planet Watch. Thank you for coming all the way welcome. over from the heart of Silicon Valley to our studio. We really appreciate you and making the trip and sharing some hopeful thoughts with us today. And we You're look welcome. forward to more times later, either here in person or we can call you, you know, save you a trip. But hey, this is a nice place to come. I love it. Same invitation for anybody and everybody else out there, by the way. Uh, I want to say about today, happy spring eve eve. <laughs> spring uh, equinox is going to be 9.15 a.m. California time this coming uh, 
March 20th, which is what? Tuesday. Now, you may say, aren't the equinoxes on the 21st? Well, actually, the solstices are, but the equinoxes... Strangely enough, uh, the spring equinox, spring for the northern hemisphere, fall for the southern hemisphere, uh, that one is always on the 20th or even, depending on your time zone, the 19th of March. And likewise, if you ever notice, the fall equinox or September equinox is always on the 22nd or even 23rd. You know why that is? I, I bet you Peter knows why. Uh, the, the fact is there are actually less days, like four or five less days in our northern hemisphere colder half of the year, our colder two seasons, fall and winter, than our warmer two seasons, spring and summer. That's because we are closest to the sun, right in the middle of the cold time, January, early January, and we are traveling fastest around the sun. So we get to those equinox points from one to the other via the cold path faster. And so notice, February has quite a few less days than all the other months. And then you get this extra day in those two directions I just described for the equinoxes. So that's what's going on there. Um, got another one for you here. Uh, speaking of crazy talk, back in the day, uh, the ancients noticed that as you drop things, they fall faster and faster and faster. They accelerate. There was a theory about that. I learned this from a great philosopher at Oberlin College in Ohio, near where our show is carried in Columbus, Ohio, by the Green Radio Network. And this philosopher talked about the old jubilance theory of gravity. And that was that as things fall, they get closer and closer to their natural desired final harmonious state. And they got happier and they fell faster. So, you know, someday. That is so, crazy talk. I'm sorry. <laughs> someday maybe people will look back on our Big Bang theory of the origin of the cosmos and chuckle about how quaint and so silly we were. If but, you fall out of a building and you go splat, you're just going to where you <laughs> naturally should reside. I mean, that's just weird. But okay, if you want to test it out, I'm not going to stop you, but I hope you put one of those trampolines. Yeah, well, as I've always told my physics students, you know, <laughs> when you jump off a tall building, it's not the distance that kills you. It's, it's the, <laughs> the acceleration. Ground. It's the fact that at the bottom of that trajectory, you're moving a hell of a lot faster than you were at the top of that trajectory. Than the concrete so, is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that too. Uh, or even water. But it's concrete made out of carbon dioxide now. It's sequestering the carbon. <laughs> oh, okay. Right, okay. right. We forgot to mention that it's sequestered carbon. Yes. I got to tell you all one more uh, thing. We got New Moon happened... Um, yesterday and so tonight where it's clear you should see a very thin crescent moon next to venus and still mercury mercury is still a little higher than venus just for this next week in the evening sky and then mercury will be gone from its best appearance of the year meanwhile venus will continue roaring into our evening skies as a beautiful evening star and i have to sh do a shout out to the muslim cultures of the world they have this thing about trying to spot the crescent moon at the earliest thinnest beautiful sliver it's even on the flag of uh, one of those countries in the middle east and i love that and that is really great i think that's a really cool wonderful tradition so go out and look for that this evening around here in santa cruz i'm afraid we might be out of luck and then the coming couple evenings you'll see the earth shine on the moon the cheshire cat grin with the glow of the earth on the dark side of the moon so anyway um this is joe jordan signing off and with the usual keep an eye on the sky and i'm rachel ann goodman thanks so much for tuning in to planet watch for another week we look forward to seeing you again next week and do keep your eye on the sky i'm rachel ann goodman with joe jordan and this has been another edition of planet watch